for the past eight months or so, except for a brief interlude at Advent during the Christmas season. We've been working our way together, of course, through the book of Revelation. And this morning we come to the very end of that. And we've seen as we've gone along an angel at this part of the book leading John the Apostle, very much like a tour guide, and and he's been walking John along through the visions that we've seen in order to show the things that must soon take place. Here in in this passage here, the angel, along with some words of Jesus mixed in with the commentary of John himself, makes the closing statement to this remarkable book. And this book, he tells us, is given to us for a purpose. The tour guide wants to be sure that we recognize it. So as we read this, for you young Christians, and for all of us, really the question is, when is Jesus coming back? The answer is very simple. At the same time, it's rather complicated. This is Revelation 22, beginning in verse 6. And he, that is the angel, said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we pray 
that you would once again give to us your Holy Spirit so that we might understand and that we might recognize the beauty of your word and the glory of your gospel to us in Jesus. Help us to recognize that he is indeed coming soon. Help us to believe that. Help us to to look around the distractions of this world and of our own lives to recognize that he is coming soon, that he is our king, and that that changes our very lives even today. Would you make that to be so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I read an article this uh, past week in which the author described his experience of, of exploring a small art gallery in Washington, D.C. He'd not been to this art gallery before, so he went and ventured his way through the different rooms of the gallery. And as he made his way through seeing the paintings and the sculptures and the various things that were there, he found himself in one particular room where what stood in the corner of the room puzzled him. It was on a short pedestal, standing, evidently, a grandfather clock. The problem was it was still draped in its white protective sheet with a rope tied around its waist. And he thought, wow, that's kind of embarrassing. Apparently the museum staff forgot to finish unveiling this piece of art. It must be some magnificent grandfather clock, but... What a shame, I don't get to see it. They left it covered. He was confused, but he went on. Three months later, he returned to visit the same museum, and he made his way through the rooms again, seeing the same pieces of art, and he made his way into that same room. And there it was again. Still on the same pedestal, still standing, evidently a grandfather clock, still draped in its white sheet with a rope wrapped around its waist. And this time, he was annoyed. He said, apparently, they didn't forget. Apparently, this is just some strange artistic experiment. We're all supposed to pretend like this has some meaning and makes some sense. And he walked away, frustrated. Sometime later, again, he visited the museum. And he walked through that room, and there still stood on that pedestal, evidently a grandfather clock draped in its white sheet, wrapped with a robe, and this time... He went up to read the description written on the base of the pedestal. And this is what it said. At first glance, ghost clock appears to be a grandfather clock hidden by a large white sheet tied with a rope. But a closer look reveals a masterful deception. This entire sculpture was hand carved from a single block of laminated mahogany. And he was dumbfounded. He was astonished at his own ignorance and his own failure. This was, in front of him, a masterful sculpture from one block of wood that had deceived him for months. The museum, he realized, had not failed to display it it properly. He, rather, as the observer, had completely failed to behold it properly. He had looked at the thing. Over the course of months, he had looked at it several times, but he had not seen it. He had not beheld what was actually there. Webster's Dictionary defines this word that shows up in our passage this morning, behold. It defines it this way. It says it means to look at something, to see something. 
And that confuses me because I think those are actually two entirely different definitions. It's kind of like the difference between hearing and listening. We all have had that experience at home. You've, you've heard the voice of a family member coming to you, but you've, you've just not listened. Those words have come in and gone out, and it never registered to you what they were actually saying because you were hearing, but you weren't listening. In the same way, we often look, but we don't see. The two are very closely related, but one is only the beginning. The other one is actually comprehending Three times in this passage that we've read, the words of Jesus come to us to beckon us to do more than just look. Verse 7, Behold, I am coming soon. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. And verse 20, as though he is urging us once again, Surely I am coming soon. With the Apostle, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation and we've been looking at many things. We've we've heard the refrain that John keeps coming to us with where he says, Then I looked and I saw. Then I looked and I saw. Then I looked and I saw again and again and again. But the question we have to ask of ourselves is, have we done more than just look? Have we actually seen, have we actually beheld what Revelation has to hold out to us? Which is this. Jesus is coming soon. Now, if we have not beheld it, then we may just go on sleeping our way through religious, religious sorts of observances and making our way through our ordinary days, doing our ordinary things and coming to church and then going home and coming to church and going home and we may never really pay attention. But if we have, if we've beheld the truth of the fact of the matter that Jesus is coming soon, then some of the main points of this book will begin to show up in our lives. What are you supposed to do? Once you've read the book of Revelation, well, for one, you're supposed to repent. Verse 6, And the angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. Now, the angel is speaking to John of the immediate context, certainly, having just shown him the new heavens and the new earth. But he's surely also alluding to the entire book because he's beginning to close the door on the thing and, and wrap it all up. And he's, he's saying to John, look, all these words that have come to you, they all are trustworthy and true. Now, if you read between the lines and the subtleties of it, then what you see is implicit that if one thing is true, that means what? Something else is false. And that's repeatedly clear in the book of Revelation as it warns us again and again and again to turn away from what's false and to turn to what is true. It began in the letter to the church in Ephesus early in this book of Revelation. Remember those seven letters that came to us in the church at Ephesus. This letter said, Jesus' words, I know your toil and how you endure And you bear up under the weight of the world for my name's sake. But 
you've abandoned the love that you had at first. And Jesus calls to them, repent. He even warns them, actually. He says, I will remove your lampstand from you unless you repent. That is, I'll take away the light that your church should be and would be showing to the world around it unless you repent, unless you turn away from what's false and turn to what's true. I think one reason that Revelation is, as we called it back in the fall, the capstone of Scripture, the last stroke on the masterpiece of God's self-portrait, which is the Bible, one reason why it's those things is that it takes one last stab at making crystal clear for us the distinction between what's good and what's evil. The distinction between what's holy and what's unholy. Remember how, as we read through this book, it lays bare the deceptive games of Satan. Remember how it it, it peels back the curtains and shows you, well, behind this. It lets you see behind the set of the stage to realize what's actually going on. It, It peels back the deceptive games of Satan. You know, don't forget that counterfeit trinity. Don't forget that in this book of Revelation. And how we saw as God portrayed sovereignly in a way that Satan himself surely would never want for us to see, God almost mockingly portrayed Satan as a dragon, a frightening beast. And he mockingly almost portrayed Satan's allies, the beast and the false prophet who rose up out of the sea and and out of the land, representing the power of the state and the power of worldly religion, combining their efforts together to draw people away from the truth, to deceive them into what's false. And remember their ridiculous mascot? Do you remember this? Babylon? The city who was a woman, but not just a woman, a gluttonous woman, arrayed in all the wealth of the world? And we saw how she actually comes straight out of the book of Proverbs that contrasts the the lady wisdom, God's word, with the woman folly, the gluttonous woman Babylon of Revelation, whose destruction was lamented only by the people who indulged themselves in her wares, only by the people who loved what she provided for them, which was really just smoke and mirrors. She would take good things and twist them into bad. She would take true things and color them false. That's what she does. That's what this world does for us. And Revelation, this book is here at the end of our Bibles to help us open our eyes, to help us learn to discern between true and false, between holy and unholy. And we have to ask ourselves the question at the end of it, at what points in my own life do I need to repent? At what points in my own life do I need to turn away from what is false, the the smoke and mirrors that that woman is offering to me, and turn instead to the truth that God's Word has to offer me. At what points do I need to do that? Now we talk with, with children in, in discussing coming to the communion table about two big ideas, repentance and faith. 
We want to talk with children about, about what it means to turn away from what's false and to turn to Jesus. But it's not just a one-time event. As you ought to know by now and growing in your Christian life, repentance is a way of life. It's a daily thing. It's an hourly event in your life. Always turning away from and turning to. Constantly learning to do that. Even John himself is still learning here in this passage, isn't he? John, who certainly understood the love of Jesus, unlike the the people in Ephesus who had lost their first love, abandoned their first love, John the Apostle was the one whom Jesus loved and who loved Jesus. And yet still here, John, at the end of the book, is still having to be corrected. Did you notice in verse 8 what happens? John says, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel. He did that just a few chapters before. So, you know, you would think, having been corrected there, that he would know now. But he's constantly having to repent. He's always, in his confusion and the mess of his own heart, looking to worship something that's not God. And the angel scolds him. You must not do that. Learn the lesson of the book of Revelation, John. And stop worshiping things that aren't worthy of worship. Turn away from things that aren't worthy of worship and worship God himself. It's important enough in the book of Revelation that it actually presses home the reality of judgment for us. And that's an idea that we see a lot of in Revelation because it's so critical. Verse 12, it comes up again. Jesus says these words here, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. What is recompense? Do you know that word? Recompense is compensation. It is paying back in kind. In other words, it may be reward or it may be judgment. It may be good or it may be bad. It may be joyful. It may be painful. He says, I'm going to repay everyone for what he has done. Now, he's coming to distinguish not just between good and evil, but he's coming to distinguish between people, between Those who will enter into the city, he says, and those who won't. And the distinction between them is repentance. Some have turned away from what's false and turned to what's true, and some have not. Some have refused to do it, as we've seen elsewhere in the book. They simply have refused to do it. But gospel repentance is never alone. You know, when when you read the book of Revelation, you are to repent, yes, but you also are to believe. So Revelation takes you through all kinds of visions and drama, right? With the remarkable scenery and the startling images that we see again and again in this book. But does it actually tell you directly what you are to believe? Does it? It does. It tells you very clearly what you are to believe if you read carefully and recognize what's there. Don't just look, but see what's there. Behold what it holds out to you, which is Jesus. John was the apostle who wrote about the I am statements of Jesus, who included those in his gospel account. How Jesus repeatedly would say to people who heard him, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate through which the the, the sheep are to pass. I am 
Jesus said again and again. And here we have some I am statements in this epilogue to Revelation. And they come in two different forms. One of them says what Jesus is doing. I am coming soon. The other form tells us what Jesus is. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, those words have already been said earlier in Revelation. In fact, at the very beginning, we ran into those words. And so thematically, it's wrapping up here at the end. Alpha and Omega, of course, being the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. But there's more to this, of course, than simply alphabet. It's a theme. And it comes, as so much of Revelation does, straight out of the Old Testament. Surprise, right? In Isaiah, Isaiah reports God's words describing himself to his people. And this is what he says. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. And then he interprets those words for us. Besides me, there is no God. Is there a God besides me, he asks? No, there is not. It's just one of the most simple lessons in all of Scripture. It's just one of the most direct statements in all of the Bible about the truth of who God is. He is the only God, and Jesus is God. What are you to believe about him? He's God. He's not a son of God. He is the Son of God. He is the Alpha. In other words, the Creator, the the one who's responsible for the beginning of all things. And He's the Omega. He's the Consummator. He's the one who's responsible for the end of all things. He's going to wrap it all up together because He's in total control of the beginning and the end and therefore everything in between. He's the Lord of all things, past, present, and future. His sovereignty and creation guarantees the fulfillment of his purposes in the recreation, which is possible because of what else he is. He says, I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. What does he, what does he mean? I mean he's, again, he's pulling us back into the Old Testament and drawing from the king of Israel himself. He's simply explaining here that I am the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament was working towards. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I'm everything that that all of Scripture to this point has been pointing and directing you to. Every passage of the Old Testament is pointing you to me in some way or another. I am the true king of God's people, not just in ancient days, but now. And it calls us to believe not just with our thoughts, but with our words. He did that in the letter to the church in Sardis. Jesus said this, Remember, Church, what you received and heard and believe it. Confess my name before the world and I will confess your name before the Father. Now often, often, this world makes it hard to confess his name. 
we have seen and heard some very remarkable things in the book of Revelation. We, we've seen riders on horses bringing war and strife and famine and death. And we've seen earthquakes splitting mountains under a blood moon. And we've heard the trumpet sending out partial judgment on the earth and the men who refused in the face of it to repent. And we've seen that dragon pursuing the woman who was ripe with child across the universe. And we've seen that dragon's allies, the beast and the false prophet, rising up out of the sea and the land to deceive people who would attend to them. And we've seen Babylon, that picture of the world's enticements that would draw us away. And as you see those things, or at least look upon them, is it hard to believe that they're true? Is it hard to believe that they're not just metaphorical, legendary ideas in the Bible so that it can end with a flourish, but they don't really mean much to you? Is it hard to believe that? Well, as you struggle to believe, you have to remember that we've also seen something else. We've seen the majestic creatures covered with eyes, looking like lions and oxen and men and eagles, proclaiming God's holiness with the thundering of their many wings. And we've seen the Lamb, the only one worthy to break open the scroll and therefore make sense of all of history. And we've seen the church, that is the bride of Christ. Remember the the 144,000, that symbolic number of a countless host, precise and not missing a single one, with its multitudes from the nations all washed in the blood of the Lamb. And we've seen the new heavens and the new earth, where tears and death and mourning find no place. It's all overwhelmingly big, isn't it? I mean, Revelation gives you a whole lot to chew on. And it's hard to believe. I mean, how are you to believe this stuff? It's, it's too big. I, mean, I, w- I would say we, in many ways, just don't have the bandwidth to take it all in. And so what does God do? He gives us that bowl of water down there. What a simple thing. He gives us water to pour on our heads to remind us of what we believe. And not only to remind us, but to, by His Spirit, enable us more and more to believe. I can't explain the equation that makes it work. It's a total mystery to you and me. But all that he's given to us is so big, there's no way we could possibly take it all in and believe it, apart from the mystery and the mercy of his grace in the water of baptism of all things. You're called to believe, but you're also called to persevere. We've seen the the offer of blessings, which Revelation began with. Way back in chapter 1, we read, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed is the one who hears the words of this prophecy. And, we read in chapter 1, blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy. Well, here, the the first words of Jesus given to us in verse 7, 
circle us back to that very beginning in chapter 1, don't they? And he tells us, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. What does that mean, to, to keep the words of this prophecy? Does it mean that we must obey it? Well, surely maybe there's some, some sort of element of that. We are to, to repent and believe. But the book of Revelation, as you well know, is not primarily a, a, a list of commands. It's not a long laundry list of things that you must do. It's a movie trailer, right? I mean, it's, it's visual. It's showing you things. It's not telling you so much what to do except for it parts along the way. There's a bigger picture at work in this keeping of the words of the prophecy, I think, and, it, and I think it probably reflects back to the book of Deuteronomy. Again, you can't do Revelation without doing the Old Testament. There in Deuteronomy, God's people have been wandering through the wilderness for decades, and they're on the verge of entering into the promised land. And Moses begins to speak to them. You know, the, the Deuteronomy is the, it means the second giving of the law, but it's Moses giving a, a long sermon to all of God's people on the edge of the promised land. He's reminding them, he's saying to them, remember all that Yahweh has done. Right? And he reviews all of that. He reviews 40 years of history with them. Remember, friends, all that Yahweh has done for us as we begin to enter into this promised land. And Moses summarizes it with words that we regularly use in our baptism practice. What are those words? These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. It implies obedience. It implies that you must do something, but that's not what he tells us to do. He says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. In other words, keep them. Cherish them. Remember them. Be defined by them. Persevere in them. Now, some of us pick up hobbies like stray cats. And then we drop them like hot potatoes. We don't persevere in them. I have a friend who, over the course of some years, cycled through hunting and fishing and golf and bowling, and motorcycles, and Jesus. He's on to other things now. We often pick up hobbies like stray cats, and we drop them like hot potatoes, and sometimes we include Jesus in that. For some, the failure to persevere in the faith is simply the result of the the clutter of shiny options that this world has to offer, and Listen, i got to tell you, that horrible woman Babylon finds easy victims that way. Now, for some, the challenge to persevere is not nearly so trivial. The letter to the church in Smyrna said this very compassionately. It said, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You know, in the first century, this exhortation was literally a matter of life and death to many. For some in our day, it's still the same, you know? 
We don't feel that in this country, of course, but we know it. We read about it in the news around the world, and we realize for some it's still very much the same. But for us, mostly it's just a matter of indifference. We, we grow weary, not because gospel faith itself is hard, but because other things are just shinier. Other things just promise a quicker return on the investment. And so we wander away. As we sang earlier, we're we're prone to wander. Therefore, the book of Revelation gives us a series of movie trailers. It gives us a series of pictures to grasp onto. a, A series of pictures that will not just give us a laundry list of things to do, but give us a visual stimulation to draw our hearts into God's overarching redemptive plan through all of history and to realize we have a place in that. And therefore, to keep it, to behold it, to cherish it, to persevere, because blessed is the one who keeps. Blessed is the one who holds the truths of this book on your heart. That one will persevere. But you also are called to anticipate as you read this, this final book of the Bible, there, there's no way you can get around this part, right? You, you have to anticipate what is yet to come. I mean, verse 6 gives us the objective of the entire book. God has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. And that's, of course, again, echoing the, the first chapter of the book, the first verse of the book. This is what this is for, to show you what must soon take place, meaning Something's coming. Something is coming. There will be some resolution to this world. And for us, in, in, in a world of tumult and war, in a world of pleasure and pain, in a world of controversial candidates and discontented electorates, sometimes it seems like the, the resolution just can't come soon enough. How soon is it going to come? I mean, Jesus tells us here three times, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. How soon? That's what we want to know, right? We, we want to count out the days like Daniel does in such mysterious ways. And we want to know, when's it going to happen? Let me, let me put it on my calendar and I just want to know how soon. When is it going to be? Well, of course we don't know. But the anticipation rises with, I think, a contrast to what Daniel Received in that Old Testament reading that we heard moments ago, Daniel, if you notice this, saw this amazing vision, and, and then he was told by the man over the river, he was, he was told, Daniel, seal the book. Seal the book, Daniel, until the time of the end. Lots is going to happen between now and then, Daniel, but seal the book until the time of the end. What did we read in Revelation 22, verse 10? Do not seal up this book. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, John. Why? Because the time is near. That's hard for us to grasp, isn't it? I mean, the whole book of Revelation is meant to stir our longings and to stir our prayers for the full realization of, of God's purposes, which will take place when Jesus comes again. And when will he come again? Soon. But what does that mean to us? How how are we to wrap our arms around that? Well, 
a little historical perspective to, to, to close us down here and remind you of the bigger biblical picture. The Old Testament showed God specially revealing himself to his people again and again and again for hundreds of years. And then the last book of the Old Testament, do you know what it is? Malachi. It's one of those little prophets, minor prophets we call them, not because they're unimportant. They just don't take up as many pages as Isaiah does. He's a minor prophet. Malachi is, and Malachi offers the last words of the Old Testament. And he says these words, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Now, Malachi recorded those words, and between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew in your Bible, there's probably just a one-page separator. But between the words of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew, there are 400 years of space. 400 years of silence in which some of God's people faithfully waited, anticipating what Malachi had to say. In fact, Malachi had explained to them, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day. There were people in Israel who were for 400 years anticipating the fulfillment of Malachi's words. When was Elijah going to come? It wasn't very soon. It was 400 years. And then when Jesus showed up, they rejoiced. Now, we had the first century, the early first century in which the New Testament unfolded. And we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and all the rest of the New Testament. And it all comes to a close with Revelation. And now there's been silence. Not for 400 years, but for 2,000 years. Soon? I'm coming soon? How can that be? Well, it may feel to us like the last hundred miles of a cross-country road trip. But we forget that, that it's God's calendar that we're talking about here. And in the words of our Scottish friend Sinclair Ferguson, on God's calendar, today is Saturday, and the eternal Sabbath is about to break. So, repent and believe and persevere and anticipate and urge him to come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen. Father, we give you thanks for your words here that you've given to us, that you give to us not just black and white words on paper, but that you give to us indeed movie trailers. You give to us a picture to see, to remember, to believe, to give us life. And we pray, therefore, Father, that you would enable us to grow in faith, to look forward to the day in which you will indeed come, that we might know that it is soon on your timeline of things and that we might see things in the way that you see them and that we might patiently wait in faith 
urging all the while that you might come soon because we long to see your purposes fulfilled. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.